Well, last week, a handful of us gathered here. And we gathered primarily to pray for our nation, but in particular to pray for the residents of Abaco and Grand Bahama. And never in our wildest dreams could we have imagined the catastrophic destruction nor the tragic loss of life that Hurricane Dorian would bring. We're told that approximately 15,000 homes were destroyed, leaving approximately 70,000 people homeless, and in some cases possessionless, minus the clothes on their backs. The last count I heard is that the number of deaths stands at 43, and that number is expected to significantly increase. In addition to the staggering death count, I've heard of dozens who have been critically injured, some resulting in amputation of limbs. And I'm sure, like me, many of you have seen the harrowing videos listening to stories of people who have told unimaginable stories of what they experienced on Abaco and Grand Bahama. And some telling horrors of what some people are still continuing to experience as they scavenge for food, trying to survive. In places where people have described it as Baghdad, where everything around them is destroyed. In the face of this heart-wrenching and tragic reality, I think the question that we should all consider is how should we respond? How should we respond to this tragedy? And by we, I mean we who are on New Providence and other islands who have been spared, and indeed in the Caribbean and in parts of the United States who have been spared. I'm not using we universally for all of us in the Bahamas because indeed if I was speaking to the people, some of whom were affected by the hurricane, I would not be bringing this message this morning. But I speak to those of us who have been spared. How should we respond? The online dictionary lexico defines a tragedy as an event causing great suffering, destruction, and distress, such as a serious accident, crime, or natural catastrophe. What Dorian has wrought on our country is a tragedy. I think for those of us who have experienced the last week in our country, if someone were to say to us, what is a tragedy? It would be honest to say Hurricane Dorian is a tragedy. We don't need this long definition. We can simply say, Dorian, that's a tragedy. But brothers and sisters, as tragic as Hurricane Dorian has been to our nation, 
a small little nation? Here's the hard truth. The hard truth is that as we live in this fallen world, as we live in this broken world, we will experience tragedy to different degrees and in different ways. It's one of the realities of living in a world that is broken and a world that has fallen. So what I want to do this morning is I want to speak to us from God's word and seek to answer this question. How should people who escape tragedy respond to tragedy? How should people who escape tragedy respond to tragedy? And I'm thinking primarily of Hurricane Dorian, but not exclusively about Hurricane Dorian. I'm thinking about tragedy in general. How should we respond? And there's no doubt a lot that could be said in answer to that question. But this morning I want us to look to God's word. And there are two specific ways that I want to encourage us in our response to tragedy. I want us to consider these, receive these as two necessary ways to respond to tragedy. The first way is the way all people are to respond. All people. And the second way is the way God's people are to respond. But before I do that, let's take a moment to look to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are grateful this morning that we are able to gather in this place. And we ask that you speak to our hearts now, Lord. God, more than anything else, we need to hear from you. Would you speak through me, above my voice and words, speak to our hearts. Speak to our hearts for your glory and speak to our hearts for our good. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So how should we respond? Those of us who have escaped tragedy. First, let's consider the response of all people. Every single person who lives in the Bahamas or in the Caribbean where Dorian um, could have hit and Florida, and indeed, anyone who is watching videos and who is getting updates and seeing what has happened, being aware of this tragedy, this goes to every single person who is aware of this tragedy or any other tragedy. This is how we should respond. And for that, we look to Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, to hear the words of the Lord Jesus in terms of how we are to respond to tragedy. Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. Luke writes, There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, 
But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The answer that Jesus gives to those who told him about what Pilate had done helps us to see that in their statement, they had an assumption. There was an assumption that they were making about those who suffered tragically when Pilate killed them, took their blood, and mingled it with the blood of the animals that they were sacrificing. The assumption was an old assumption. And that assumption is that tragedy comes to those who sin. And you know what? That's our typical assumption. That is the most frequently repeated assumption and statement that I've heard during the course of this week. If it wasn't a statement, it was certainly a question. But it's not new. Every time we have tragedies, every time a hurricane hits, when Katrina hit New Orleans, it was because, oh, New Orleans is a sinful place, so the hurricane went to New Orleans. But friends, this response is not just a response in our time. This is an ancient response. We find this response in the book of Job when Job suffered calamity after calamity. And his friends came to him. And his friends began to accuse him of sins that he had never committed. They accused him of stripping the naked of their clothing. They accused him of withholding bread from the hungry and water from the weary. And not caring for the widows and turning away the orphans. And yet when we look at the opening of the book of Job, what we see is that the Lord himself commends Job as a man who is blameless and upright, as a man who fears God and turns away from evil. But his friend said to him, Job, you are suffering because you sinned. Acknowledge it, Job. Tragedy only comes to those who sin. And you did all these things, and that's why you're suffering. There's an account in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus and his disciples came to this man who was blind. In Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. And this is what, in John, sorry, John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. This is what John records. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God may be displayed. The disciples asked the question, Lord, who sinned? Somebody had to sin, either him or his parents, that he was born blind. That was the general assumption. That if you have tragedy, if you have some suffering in your life, the reason is you must have sinned. And Jesus says, neither. He says, you're wrong on both scores. It's not him. It's not his parents. This was because God desired to display his mighty works. 
And so here in Luke 13, Jesus corrects this assumption of those who brought this story to him about what Pilate did. And in his correction, the way he corrects them is he corrects them by asking them a question. And essentially the question that he asked them is if they thought that the people who suffered this great tragedy at Pilate's hands were worse sinners than all the other Galileans who were spared, who did not suffer that tragedy. And Jesus was making the point that they were not. He was making the point that they didn't suffer because they were sinful or they, they, they did some wrong thing. His point is, every single person in Galilee is no different and could have happened, had the same fate happen to them as those who Pilate killed. But Jesus goes further. They told Jesus about one event, and Jesus picks upon another event. He says, what about when the Tower of Siloam fell and killed 18 people? Do you think that they were, he says, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the other people who lived in Jerusalem? And again, his point is clear, no. They're not worse. You're not better just because you were spared. Jesus is essentially saying those who die tragically are no different from those who are spared. They're not more sinful you're not more righteous. And friends, in his response to those who told him about Pilate's atrocity, what Jesus was really saying to them is, look, don't speculate about them, but turn your eyes to yourself. Turn your eyes to yourself and evaluate your own life. Notice what Jesus says two times in verses 3 and 5. He says the exact same thing in response to each of those scenarios. He says, No, I tell you, they're not worse sinners, they're not worse offenders. No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In other words, take your eyes off of that tragedy. Put your eyes on yourself and realize that you're no different, that that could have been you, and that you need to repent unless you are going to perish. You will likewise perish if you do not repent. Now, what was Jesus saying to them? Was Jesus saying to them, look, if you don't repent, Pilate could likely take you and mingle your blood with your sacrifice. Or if you don't repent, maybe a tower is going to fall down on you. He's not saying that at all. Jesus is not having in view that the similar tragedy could happen to them. No, Jesus had another tragedy for another day in view, and that is a far greater tragedy. And that is the day of judgment. The day when the wrath of God is going to be poured out on the ungodly. And in light of that coming tragic day, Jesus says, 
instead of focusing on the present tragedy and wondering about the people in that tragedy, focus on yourself and think about a coming day, the most tragic day in all of human history, when God's wrath will be poured out on the ungodly, and in light of that, you need to repent. Two times he says it. You need to repent. And brothers and sisters and friends, what Jesus said to them, he's saying to us. As we contemplate Hurricane Dorian and all the devastation and everything else, let us not be so preoccupied with it that we're not thinking about the implications for our own lives and we are not saying that we're being called as well to repent. A lot of times when we hear the word repent, in particular those of us who gathered this morning, we tend to think, oh, that's a word for unbelievers. Unbelievers, they need to repent. But that's not true. The Christian life is repentance from start to finish. The Christian life is a life of repentance. And so when we come to Christ, we repent, we turn from our sin, but we continue every single day because we don't cease to be sinners. We don't cease to sin. And we need to continue to repent and to turn from sin in an ongoing way. You know the disciples' prayer where the Lord tells us that we are to pray daily, give us this day our daily bread, meaning it's to be prayed daily. In that same prayer, he says we are to pray and forgive us our debts, as we forgive those who are indebted to us, or forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And that's not just mouthing that. That's not just saying, oh Lord, forgive me. No, what that is, is that is repenting so that we can turn away from sin. Because that's the only way that we turn away from sin. It's not just say, well, I confess it. True confession is from our hearts. True confession is based on repentance and turning away from sin. If it's not based on repentance, it's not true confession. And so this call to repentance in the, in the face of tragedy is not just for unbelievers who run the risk of dying and going to hell without Christ. It's a call to us as well. It's a call to us as well to take inventory of our lives. I want to ask you this morning, has Hurricane Dorian and all of this devastation prompted repentance, prompted a rethinking of how we live? You know, as I think about this, I'm trying to illustrate it in a way that may be helpful. I believe that if any of us this morning was told you have one month to live. With certainty, you're going to die in a month. Here's what I know. Every single one of us will make some drastic changes. Every single one of us, if we know Christ, we will be seeking to draw nearer to God. We will be seeking to pray. We will be seeking to get into his word. We would be seeking to forgive others. We would be seeking forgiveness from others. We would radically change so many things in our lives from a spiritual perspective. Material things will not have as high a place in our lives. We'd have a totally different outlook on life. 
Life will begin to be precious. The mercy of God will begin to be precious. The grace of God will begin to be precious. If we were told that we have a month to live. I say that because sometimes we could think, well, I don't have anything to repent about. Well, if we could make those changes, if we learned that our day of death was impending upon us, brothers and sisters, as we contemplate this tragedy, we can repent. There are things in our lives we need to repent about. We need to turn from sin. And it's not just See, this is where I think we get into a lot of difficulty as those who follow Christ. We make great efforts to forsake what we consider the big sins. The sins of sexual morality, for example. We make great effort to avoid them. But we don't make the same effort to avoid what one author referred to as respectable sins. If you want to see a list of respectable sins, turn to Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6. And verse 16. It says, There are six things the Lord hates that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes or pride, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Brothers and sisters, we need to forsake sin. We need to ask ourselves, what about if, if that were me who perished in Abaco or perished in Grand Bahama. And didn't even have the time or the presence of mind to be thinking about repenting and turning to God. Just thinking about survival. Where would, where, where would that have put us? And not to say that we can find ourselves at any moment in time where we are perfectly righteous in and of ourselves to deserve to be in God's presence. I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm saying is this is a call to us to, to, to repent from spiritual carelessness, spiritual indifference, and really draw near to God. It says, if you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. And so Jesus says, in the face of tragedy, we need to respond with contrition. Our first response needs to be contrition and repentance. And contrition because our hearts can be hardened by sin. Our hearts can be hardened where we know something is wrong, but there's no remorse. And brothers and sisters, that is a a very dangerous place to be in. Where I can acknowledge this is sin, 
There's no brokenness. There's no contrition in our hearts. Because it is that contriteness that would lead us to repentance, to really turn away. And so we need to ask the Lord, Lord, would you break my heart with the things that it should be broken by? Help me to see my sin the way I need to see my sin so that I may be contrite, so that I may be repentant and I might turn away from my sin. We all, believer and unbeliever, need to hear and heed this warning from Jesus as he calls us to repent. If you're an unbeliever this morning, your response is for the first time to repent and turn away from sin. And to the rest of us this morning, our response, if we will hear Jesus, is to do business with him, with sins that we are aware of in our lives, asking him for the grace to turn away from them and to renounce them and to hate them and to love the things that he loves. I'm pretty sure that some are probably thinking and wondering, well, what do you have to say about hurricanes and natural disasters? Can they be the judgment of God? Or can they be the destructive work of the devil? I find the response of Jesus to the people who asked him this question to be very insightful. I want you to look at it again. Do you notice that Jesus never answers their question? He never answers it. They come to him, well, they didn't make a question, but they made a statement that had assumptions in it where they said to him, Pilate mingled the blood of animals with the blood of the people who were offering those animals as he killed them. Jesus never addresses it. He turns the attention away from that tragedy to the people. And you know what? That's the reason this morning I will not even seek to venture to talk about what does that mean? What about this? What about that? I'm not going to talk about that. Following the example of Jesus, he says it's not important. What you need to do is you need to take your eyes off of that and put it on yourself. Because you're no better off than those who perish. You're no better off than those who lost everything that they own. And you need to remember that that tragedy is not the greatest tragedy. The greatest tragedy is the coming one. The day of the wrath of God that will be poured out on the ungodly. So that's the first response. The response of all people in the face of tragedy. Tragedy that they've escaped is contrition and repentance. Looking at our lives more than speculating about the tragedy. The second response is for God's people. This is those who know the Lord. And for this response, we look to the words of the psalmist in Psalm 131. Psalm 131. 
The psalmist writes, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. The response that God's people are called to in this psalm is in two parts. It's a two-part response that we are called to. The first part is in verse 1. It's a call to humility. When we occupy ourselves with things that are too great, too marvelous for us, is the way the psalmist describes it, things that we just cannot understand, things we cannot comprehend, when we do that, it is an expression of pride. Notice what the psalmist says. He says, O Lord, my heart isn't lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. And brothers and sisters, I want to say to us this morning, Hurricane Dorian is too great and too marvelous for us. Not to think about, but to be preoccupied with. To occupy ourselves with it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Because the minute we try to explain what is too marvelous for us, what is too great for us, we're going to get ourselves in great difficulty. In the face of this tragedy and all other tragedies, we would be wise to follow the example of Job's three friends initially when they came to him. When Job's three friends came to him initially, here's what it says in Job 2.13. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. They were wise for seven days. They sat with him and zipped their lips and did not seek to try to speak to his situation because they saw that his suffering was very great. But then they got themselves in trouble as they began to try to explain what happened to Job. They weren't privy to the conversation that Job and Satan had, but yet they interjected themselves to explain to Job why he has suffered the calamities that he suffered. And what we see is in the end, at the end of the book of Job, in Job 42 verse 7, we see the Lord rebuking them. And this is what the Lord says to them. You see this in Job 42, 7. After the Lord has spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Brothers and sisters, things that are too marvelous for us, things that are too great for us, when we speak, we will not speak right of God. We will not speak what God would have us to speak because it's beyond us. And God wants us to keep silence. God wants us to zip our lips and watch and observe and consider and repent. Now this doesn't mean that we cannot 
think about it. Doesn't mean that questions would not arise in our minds. Questions arose in my mind. Questions still arise in my mind. I still wonder why did Hurricane Dorian pass New Providence? It was forecasted to hit us. And then we watched throughout the day, Friday and Saturday, it began to shift and shift more to the east of us. I wonder why little children died in Abacon, Grand Bahama. Especially as I watch videos of people, hardened sinners, who were spared, some cursing in the videos even after they were spared. I'm saying, Lord, how is that? I heard the story of a man who lost his five-year-old son. And then you watch these other people cursing, ungrateful, seemingly not remembering that they were just saved from death. You wonder, why? It's fine to have those wonderings, but let's not preoccupy ourselves with them. And let's not try to find answers for them. It's too great for us. There are people sheltering in a church. The church crashes down on them. Turn with me to Ecclesiastes. And here's here's part of our dilemma. Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Here's what the writer, the preacher in Ecclesiastes says in verse 14. Ecclesiastes 8, 14. There is a vanity. And this word vanity is, it's a mist. It's a vapor. And the idea that he is talking about is it's something that you can't grasp. It's something you can't wrap your hands around. You can't understand it any more than you can grasp mist in your hand. So he's essentially saying there's something that is impossible to understand that takes place on the earth. That there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said this is also an impossibility to understand. And then he says this in verse 17. Then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. We can't find it out. So let us not be preoccupied with this. Let us not take time to sit around and say, Is it because of this or is it because of that? No, brothers and sisters, that's not a profitable use of our time. Let us keep our mouths closed. 
Let us not show ourselves to be proud, but show ourselves to be humble by saying, God, that's so marvelous we don't understand. I don't understand that. But here's what we can be preoccupied with. We can be preoccupied with knowing that God is perfectly sovereign, that God is perfectly wise, and that God is perfectly good. We know that to be true. Despite all that we see, despite all that we don't understand, despite all that we will never understand, we know this to be true. And this is where our preoccupation must be. We must trust in the Lord who is perfectly sovereign, perfectly wise, and perfectly good. And we who are not perfectly sovereign, are not perfectly wise, are not perfectly good, are in no position to critique him. We do well to be like Job's friends and keep our mouths closed. I'm going to say this is one of the comforts of believing in a sovereign God. Believing in a God who is in absolute and total control of all of his universe and not one single piece or part at any moment in any time ever falls outside of his sovereign sway and his sovereign rule. So first we're called to humility. The second part of the psalm, verses 2 and 3, we go back to Psalm 131. Psalm 2 and 3 call us to trust. The psalmist write, but I, writes, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. The psalmist uses this picture of a weaned child and its mother to communicate to us the quiet trust that God's people must have when they face things that are too great and too marvelous for them, things like Hurricane Dorian, tragedies like that. I think most of us know that weaning is the process by which a child is gradually taken off of milk and put on solid food. And I think most mothers who have had more than one child would know that children are different and they wean differently, and for some it's shorter, some it's longer, some it's harder, some it's, it's easier. And in the case of some breastfed babies, I think you mothers who have breastfed, if you breastfed for any length of time, I'm sure that you could recall some situation, some circumstance where a child wanted to be breastfed, and it just wasn't convenient to do it. But children, they just don't, don't care. You could be in public, you could be in the food store, in the car, you could be on the bank line, wherever you are, they want the breast, they will be crying out for it, and in such a way that if you don't appease them, people will look around and think you're harming your child or doing something else. 
And so with the psalmist, the, the picture that he's giving to us is not that kind of child. Not that kind of child who's treating the mother and relating the, to the mother as if the mother will never fee- give the child anything to eat. The psalmist says, no. He says, what I've done is I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. A child that's been weaned is able to trust the mother because he has some history to know that he has been fed. And so the mother is going to feed the child. And we've all seen this. Sometimes when a child has been weaned and the child can wait, sometimes the child wants to eat, but the mother may say, give me a second, I have to do this or that, and the child patiently waits because he knows he's going to be fed. That's the picture of the psalmist. That's the picture that he is calling us to. That's the trust that he is calling us to in the midst of things that we don't understand, things that are too difficult for us to comprehend. But the picture here still is not where the mother says to the child, I'm going to get you something, and the mother disappears, and the child doesn't see the mother. The child is seeing the mother, and so the child knows in a matter of time, my mother, who I can see, is going to give me the food that I need. And that presence brings comfort. That presence brings great comfort. And so the picture that the psalmist is communicating in the face of these circumstances that are beyond our comprehension is that not only must we be humble, but we must trust in God. We must repose our trust in the Lord. Trusting in his goodness, trusting in his sovereignty, trusting in his wisdom. And not acting like a child who has not been weaned, a child who is acting like he's never eaten before. It's calling us to a place of trust. And so we who belong to God in the face of these tragedies, in the face of these situations that we don't understand, we are called to respond with humility before God and trust in God. Brothers and sisters, I must say that as I considered the tragedy of Hurricane Dorian, as I considered tragedies in general, Bad tragedies. And I call them bad tragedies because it caused me to think of what I would describe as a good tragedy. The destruction of Hurricane Dorian, that's a bad tragedy. But the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is a good tragedy. It's a tragedy because he who knew no sin became sin for us. The one who alone deserved to live died because he took the place of sinners. And so the the good tragedy took place on Calvary's hill when Jesus ascended it. And when Jesus was nailed to a cruel cross and God the Father poured his wrath out upon him for the sins of sinners, And there Jesus was, suspended between heaven and earth. He was extended between these two thieves, and God poured out his wrath upon him. I was thinking about that.
picture of that good tragedy that took place on Calvary. You know what struck me? It struck me that the two thieves, one on either side of the Lord Jesus Christ, is a representative of every single one of us. The two thieves, one of them is a representative of every single human being. Because one of them put his faith in Jesus and repented and was given a promise that he would be with the Lord Jesus after death. And the other remained unrepentant. The other saw the good tragedy of Christ being a substitute for sinners. And it looked no different to him than all the other crucifixions that had ever happened. And he didn't repent. And so he was lost. But the other one repented. He turned from his sin. And that good tragedy amounted for his benefit. And this morning, for all of us, we need to consider which one of those thieves is representative of us. Will the good tragedy of Jesus Christ dying on the cross be of benefit to you? Like the thief who believed in him, or would the good tragedy of Jesus dying on the cross be of no benefit to you like the one who remained unrepentant and who cursed up to the moment of his last breath. I pray that God would grant us all repentance. I pray that God would grant us all the ability to humble ourselves, to trust him, and to focus ourselves and occupy ourselves with the fact that he is perfectly sovereign, perfectly wise, and he is perfectly good. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you this morning for your word, and we thank you for speaking to us in the midst of a great tragedy. Lord, help us to join all people who you're called to repent. Help us to be contrite. Help us to repent. And then, Lord, for those of us who are your people, would you help us to humble ourselves and to trust in you and to acknowledge that we cannot know the work of God. We cannot know why the way of the wicked happens to the righteous. And the way of the righteous sometimes happens to the wicked. Lord, help us to be content to rest in you and to trust in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.